Words are very, very powerful. If you think about it, we use words all the time. But we may not always consider how powerful and important words are for shaping who we are. Words shape the way that we think. They shape the way that we feel. Words shape the way that we act. Words bring life and words bring death. For example, if you yell at someone, there's many ramifications to that. When you yell at someone, you may bring about shame in that person's life or fright in that person's life, or you may motivate that person to do something great. You also might yell at someone in order to protect them from pending harm. Yelling transforms people. Lies transform people. When we tell lies, when we hear lies, those lies can bring confusion into our minds. They can mislead us. They can cause us to pursue false priorities. Words can malform us. Lies can damage us. Words are powerful. When we use our words to share facts, those facts can offer perspective that is helpful. Or when we share facts, those words can provide us with hope when we need it. Or warning, if we're about to say or do or think something that's unhelpful. Words are powerful. And the person that you are today, whether you've thought about this consciously or not, the person that you are today is largely the end result of millions and millions and millions of words that you have heard spoken to you or that you have spoken to someone else. Words shape lives, they shape civilizations, they shape nations, they shape history. And they also shape, most fundamentally, our relationship with God. Now, as human beings, we use words to educate one another. As humans, we study the natural world around us, plants, animals, biology. We study human systems and human structures. We study language. We study the supernatural world as well. As we study our sacred scriptures, we seek to understand more about God and answer the big questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And where am I going? Words are used to educate. But we need to be careful what words we receive as true. Think about all the subjects that we study in school. We study history, and in the studying of history, we look essentially for patterns of behavior that will inform the present. We look for perspectives on life. Where do we come from? Why do we act the way we do? Why shouldn't we act the way we are currently acting? Or why do we act the way we are currently acting? History, the words of history, shape our lives in the moment. When we study language, what does language do? The study of language assists us to actually structure our thinking, to communicate with clarity. God has spoken words to us in his holy word and through the 
work of the apostles and the prophets and notably Jesus Christ himself. Science allows us to study the physical world and benefit from it. Art gives us opportunities to express the work of the creator God as we seek to recreate images or sculptures or other works of art that in some way help us to understand the creativity of God and what it looks like in all of its beauty and goodness as well as what it looks like when it is marred by sin. Words are all part of our educational processes. Words teach us about history. Words teach us about language. Words teach us about science. Words teach us about art. Words teach us about economics. Words teach us about governmental structures. And words teach us about God. Words are powerful. Now, secular education... And secularism is basically the claim to spiritual neutrality. Secular education, often known as public education, claims that education is morally and spiritually neutral. Morally and spiritually neutral. So the claim of secular education is that they are the middle ground. If you go to a secular school, a public school, you will just be told the facts about history or language or the arts or science or whatever the other disciplines happen to be that you're studying. But we know, and increasingly so in a culture and country like ours, this is actually a false claim. There is no such thing as secular, morally neutral education. All education from the time we are in junior kindergarten to the time we finish our PhD dissertations has a sacred dimension to it. Education is a spiritual exercise. And in fact, one could argue theologically and biblically that all subjects fail to fully produce understanding and wisdom without a theistic worldview. In other words, if you talk about history using words, if you talk about art using words, if you talk about economics using words, but you never reference the source of truth, the one who spoke the world into existence through his powerful word, the one who continues to speak truth into our lives through the word of God. If you study these subjects, but you never reference the source of truth, your education will be severely impeded. We've been doing a teaching series in our church called Desecularizing Christianity. And the reason for this is because at this point in human history, the vast majority of individuals in our churches were raised in a so-called secular educational system from elementary school right up, including people like myself. We were raised in a secular educational system. We were put there by trusting parents and trusting guardians that said, oh, it's, it's, it's going to be fine for you, Aaron. It's morally neutral. Nothing there is going to challenge your understanding of God or your understanding of truth. You're not going to be polluted. It's all morally neutral. But what we're increasingly understanding after several decades now of experimenting is that many people in our churches now think more like secularists than they do like Christians. They come to church on Sundays, they show up at their Bible studies, but their view of government, 
their view of economics, their view of sociological structures, their view of psychology, their view of the sciences, and more, reflect more of a secular worldview or mindset than they do a biblical worldview or mindset. And one of the examples of this is people in many of our churches that love the Lord Jesus Christ kind of take the study of Scripture and relegate it to a footnote in their own education and in the educational processes that they expose their children to. I'm convinced, and I don't think this is an overstatement, that when push comes to shove, many people that follow the Lord Jesus Christ today don't actually think that the word of God has anything to say much beyond Sunday morning. The word of God is is a separate subject for many. You know, you have your English, you have your mathematics, you have so forth and so on, and then you have religion. And we dedicate a little bit of time and energy to that on weekends. But during the week, we take all of the other subjects and we put them into practice. think about the detriment of a desecular or a secularized education. Let's say that you study science from a supposed secular perspective without any consideration of God's view of science, of God's view of the world. Do you think it's any wonder that the vast majority of people in our culture today will study science and then actually use science to justify things like the abortion of unborn children, arguing scientifically that this person is not actually human? Should it surprise us that people can use science to actually validate, seek to validate the ludicrous viewpoint that everything that we see came out of nothing with no uncaused cause, with no divine words, with no creative acts of an eternal being. It just all happened. And we actually use science, which supposedly is morally neutral, to justify this kind of godless thinking. English, the study of language, French, the study of language, Greek, the study of language, whatever language you're using, that's not morally neutral. You can use words to tell lies. You can use words to deceive. Unless language itself is informed by a biblical perspective, language can actually lead people away from God. And we know from human history that it has time and time and time again. Art is certainly not morally neutral. Art is often used to express human depravity and deviancy. Where people utilize art and they say, what's art all about? Art is, is expressing oneself. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's a secular view of art. Well, it makes sense. Aren't I the center of the universe? Doesn't it all kind of revolve around me? Aha, now you're belying that you're a humanist. But a lot of people in our churches think that. It's art. Why? Because someone's expressing themselves. Thanks for expressing yourself. But a biblical view of art says that The creature observes the work of the creator and seeks to represent that in some way, either in its wholeness or its brokenness, through artistic expression. 
So a biblical view of art, I would argue, is that the artist is actually seeking to reflect something of the ultimate artist. But again, you're not going to hear that in secular education. How about in economics, the study of economics? Is that morally neutral? Economics can be used to lift and provide and build up and remedy injustices, or it can be used to impoverish and suppress and penalize vulnerable persons. How about physical education? It's physical education. I mean, that's got to be morally neutral. But what we're seeing increasingly in sports and in physical education is not so much an effort to be healthy as a good steward, but a desire to glamorize and draw attention to the human physique. This is not morally neutral. This is a morally charged understanding of physical education. So all of this to say is that if education is not grounded in a changeless God, you will quickly become secular in your thinking. And secularism is not morally neutral. Secularism is actually opposed to the things of God. So let me give you two thoughts. And then I want to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 11 where there's this radical, timeless call to get into the word of God and to educate ourselves on the things of God, the perspectives of God, and the purposes of God. Here are my two statements. There's no such thing as morally neutral education. And there is no proper education apart from Scripture. There's no such thing as a morally neutral education, and there is no proper education apart from scripture. And we're not just talking about education in the area of religion, but what we're going to see in this text is that it's a radical call for us to take that which we know to be true because God has spoken it to us and integrate it, not just into our Sunday morning experience, but to allow it to leak into and affect every day, every moment of our lives. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 to 21 is the text that I've selected today. And we can ask this question as we enter into this text. I want you to ask this question as you listen. Who wants to die and who wants to live? Who wants to die and who wants to live? Most people who are normal and mildly functional would say, I want to live. I don't want to die. But did you know that your beliefs will affect where you land when it comes to life or death? Your beliefs will affect whether you will continue to live or whether you will die. Here's what the creator communicates to the creature, beginning with verse 16. He says, take care. This is a warning, but it's like a pastoral warning. Take care. It's a soft warning, but it is a direct warning, and it is a necessary warning, and it is an extremely important warning. Read on. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Who would want that? It's like, no way. I don't want to be deceived. 
I don't want my heart to be deceived and I don't want to fall into the trap of worshiping false gods. But what this opening verse tells us is that there are actually causes behind spiritual death. The first is a deceived heart. and The second is idolatry. They're both found in this verse. We're told to take care lest our heart be deceived. Now, by the way, in biblical thinking, unlike in modern thinking, the heart is not a reference to the organ that pumps blood and circulates blood through your bodies. The heart refers to the inner man. And the inner man is primarily governed by his mind as well as his passions, which essentially are, you know, emotive responses to what goes through or doesn't go through his or her mind. So really what this is, is it's a call to take care lest our hearts, no, our heads be deceived. And when we are deceived, when we allow our minds to be deceived, when we allow stinking thinking to settle in, when we allow false views about God or the world around us or our purposes or our finances or our relationships with one another or our marriages or whatnot, when we allow false ideas to fill up our minds, we become deceived. And what happens is that leads to idolatry. You might think, I don't really see the connection there. Like how, how does having a deceived heart necessarily and inevitably toss me into worshiping other gods? What we need to understand, and this is consistent with the whole of scripture, is that when we turn away from the word of God and truth and buy into deception, we're not just turning away from truth, we're actually turning away from God himself. God is the eternal truth. God is absolute truth. Jesus is the eternal word of God. The Bible is the written word of God. When we turn away from words, we're not just turning away from some words that were uttered to us. We're turning away from God himself. And you might think, well, that's bad, but can't just sort of exist in moral neutrality. No, when one turns from God, you necessarily and inevitably turn to some other God. It's impossible not to worship something, to pursue something, to idolize something, to esteem something above and beyond oneself. It's impossible. We will always worship something. And it might literally be a little carved image like ancient peoples often worship. It might be self. It might be false religion. It might be education or athletics or whatever it might be. It might be our automobile. It might be property you own. It might be your family. But inevitably, we are designed to worship something. And if we turn from God's word, we inevitably turn from God. And if we turn from God, we will pursue something or someone as our God to worship. And so deception leads to idolatry. And idolatry, as we read on, leads to consequences. So what you allow yourself to believe matters. Verse 17, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. So this is consequence language. And he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. So this is a reference to like the physical heavens. 
under the old covenant. And the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. What are the consequences of turning from God's word, of allowing our minds to be deceived with falsehood? How about the anger of God? This angers God. It's like, why doesn't God just kind of chill out a little bit? Like, why is God so sensitive to falsehood? I mean, doesn't God understand we're fallen human beings? Like, why does he get so worked up when a little bit of deception creeps in? Because God is holy. God is sovereign. God is absolutely just. God necessarily responds to evil with anger. It is the proper response to deception, which leads to idolatry. This spills over into the absence of provision. Now we need to understand, and we're always making these kind of translations in our minds, that when we're reading Old Covenant scriptures, we're not dismissive of Old Covenant scriptures, but we need to understand that the means by which God blessed his people under the Old Covenant is different in part from the way God blesses his people under the new covenant, which is what we find ourselves under as followers of Jesus. What do we mean by this? Under the old covenant, the primary expressions of God's blessings upon his people were tangible, physical blessings. They included safety on the battlefield, protection from one's enemies, a long life, fertility, the ability to bear many children, healthy crops, healthy vineyards, lots of livestock. These are the tangible physical blessings that God offered to the people of Israel. And when he would warn them about sin, he would often say, hey, if you don't smarten up, I'm going to take these things away from you. Now, the same principle applies in the new covenant, but we look for spiritual blessings. Is it true that God blesses us physically? Yes, he does. Every good gift from God is a blessing. Everything you own, everything you've ever owned, everything you've ever eaten is a blessing from God. But the warning to the old covenant people and by extension to the new covenant people, regardless of the fact that the blessings may differ, is this. If you are deceived, you turn from God, you start to worship something other than God, expect that your provisions will start to dwindle. Where do your blessings come from? Where do your possessions come from? It's like, well, uh, they come from the grocery store. What's your favorite grocery store? Name it. Oh, they, they come from the hardware store. They come from the car lot. No, not ultimately. All of these things ultimately come from God. Whether your favorite place to buy things is the local hardware store, the mall, Amazon. By the way, talk about a flourishing business right now, right? I think we've had more trucks pull into our driveway in the past two and a half months because my kids keep ordering things on Amazon than I've ever seen packages in my life. Pretty flourishing business. But what you need to understand is it's, it's not ultimately from Amazon, It's not ultimately from your favorite department store, your favorite 
hardware store, everything you have comes from God. And by the way, tongue in cheek, this means that God is a pretty gracious God because God allows us to eat some things, you know, like craft dinner and chicken wieners and white castle burgers, kind of gross stuff. Those ultimately come from God. Yeah, they do. God provides us with everything, everything you have, everything you've ever owned and everything you ever will own is a gracious and loving provision by a benevolent God. But when we walk from God and fail to acknowledge the source and we deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, that just comes about as a result of a good economy or a gracious government or my own ingenuity. When we believe lies like that, and many people do, at least by their actions, certainly seems like they do. Don't be surprised if God's physical and spiritual blessings start to become increasingly infrequent in your life. The text also speaks in verse 17 about early death as a consequence of sin. And of course, that can be true even under the new covenant. We've read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul in his teaching to the church about celebrating the Lord's Supper said some people have gotten sick and some have died because they abused the Lord's Supper. So physical death can be a direct judgment from God. Ultimately, spiritual death is the ultimate judgment from those who have failed to bow their knees or bend their knees and bow before God and accept him as their Lord and Savior. So this first section is a warning. It's a warning against deception, the natural outcome of which is without question and without fail, idolatry, the consequences of which are grave. So we start off with a warning to the text. It's like, well, how can I possibly avoid this? I would like to avoid this. I would like not to experience the wrath of God. I would like not to experience death. I would like not to experience God's judgment. Well, read on. Think of all the possible responses that might initially flood through your mind as to how you might be able to avoid these things. Well, maybe I should just be more, um, maybe I should get some more education. Maybe I should, uh, maybe we should vote in a better government. Maybe, maybe I should find a better physician. Maybe I should get another degree. Maybe I should expand my friend circle. What do I need to know in order to better myself morally and physically. Maybe I need to take up yoga or meditation. What do I need to do to avoid being deceived and falling into idolatry? Well, the answer from God is get a biblical education. And again, if you're accustomed to thinking, well, education is kind of divided up into different categories. There's religion over here, and then there's everything else over here. You might be thinking, I don't see how this text relates at all to education. It does relate to education because biblical education is the foundation for the study of everything else. And so while the text is speaking specifically of the study of God's word, 
which includes principles and practices and observations and warnings and promises and hope. It's foundational to the whole of life. It underpins all other disciplines. If you don't become a conscientious student of God's word, all of the other disciplines will ultimately fail you. And there will be consequences to that and you will be deceived. This is why preeminent in scripture, above and beyond everything else in the Christian life is the insistent call to get ourselves into the word of God. Get a biblical education. It's a very intense passage as you read on. It's, it, it, it doesn't allow us to make the study of scripture a footnote, a secondary consideration, to relegate it to something insignificant. The study of scripture must become an all-pervading, passionate pursuit of every true follower of the true and living God. It says in verse 18, you shall, therefore, Therefore, meaning in response to the warning not to be deceived and get yourself involved in idolatrous worship, you shall therefore, this is the solution, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then here's the blessing. That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. And they still are. They still are. And when it comes to the study of scripture, sometimes as Christians, we kind of reduce it to sort of like pen and notebook style study. Got my pen, I'm taking notes. I'm just growing in knowledge. I, I know how to quote scripture. I know my Bible passages. I know the historical context of the timeline of scripture. I know how to study words and phrases. And we, re, we take the study of scripture and we, we reduce it down to what is fundamental but we just leave it there. And that is like a pen and notebook approach to the word of God. But clearly this passage is not a pen and notebook response to the word of God. It's much, much more than that. It's an all pervasive commitment to the word of God. Biblical education unfolds. Look at the progress. First of all, when we receive God's words, this is an act of the will. We receive God's words. It says, lay them up meaning like collect them. And of course, it's impossible to collect them all in one sermon or even in one lifetime. So this is an ongoing continuous action. We're constantly collecting up God's word. We're laying them up for immediate use and future use in our hearts and in our minds. We're called to internalize them. Where do we put them? Does it say just kind of, make mental lists. No, it it uses the language of heart and soul, which again means the mind, but it's also more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. The word of God must take up residence inside of us. It must infect us and affect us. 
so that we might be blessed by them. We're told to put them on display because we're apt to forget. Now, there's a couple ways that the text unpacks this thought for us. The word of God should always be before us. doesn't mean necessarily that you're literally always looking you know, into your Bible. You might get in a car accident if you do that. But it's always before us. So a couple ideas here. The one is to put them on your hands and talks about frontlets between your eyes. Now, those of you that know a little bit about Judaism know there's different branches and strands of Judaism, but some of the more conservative and orthodox brands of Judaism take this passage literally. And by the way, this teaching is found four times in the word of God, twice in Exodus and twice in Deuteronomy. So they will create little boxes called phylacteries and they'll strap them to their arms during their their hands, during their daily prayers. And they'll wear them literally between their eyes on their forehead as part of their daily prayers. They take this passage literally, not metaphorically. Now, if you study the context, you'll understand that a metaphorical approach is a better interpretation. You know why? Because it leads to ultimate application. The call in this text is not just a strap it on. The call in this text is to internalize it, take it within you. Remember? Let it be in your heart and in your soul. To internalize it is the ultimate goal when we study God's word. And then the text also speaks of writing them on your doorposts. Maybe you've literally done that. Maybe you have scripture texts on your doorposts. I don't know many of you literally have them up the sides of your doorposts and across the top and down and in the front of your gates, but you might, I don't know. But these concepts, whether one does practice them physically and literally or not, nevertheless require that we practice them metaphorically. God is calling us to constantly have his word in front of us. It's like, well, how do I do that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to be uh, more conscientious of God's word. Well, God being a practical God gives us some advice in this area. He says, talk about them everywhere you go. Talk about them in your home. Talk about them when you're out for a walk. Teach them to your children. Talk, teach, just at night for a couple minutes before we go to sleep, just on Sundays, just when we're getting ready to go to church, all of a sudden we get all spiritual? No. The call of the Christian is to keep God's word in front of us all the time, all the time. Sadly, and I've mentioned this before, I know that on multiple occasions over the years, especially when I was a youth pastor for like eight and a half years, when I would meet with a lot of young people and they were going through some challenges and struggles in their lives, oftentimes you'd start to talk about their family. It's like, well, tell me about your family. Like, what do your parents think about this? Or did you talk about this issue with your parents? Or what's your parents' instruction been in this area? And of course there are, Many kids that are, would be like, yeah, you know, my, my parents taught me this. Or they gave me good instruction in this area. But more often than not, sadly, you'd have Christian children, Christian young people from Christian homes from, you know, they grew up in 
homes that I would consider their parents to be godly people. And they're like, actually, my mom and dad rarely, if ever, talk about God outside of church. It's like, really? So you, you never, you've never studied scripture with them? No, not really. You don't sit around the living room talking about God and life and how the word of God affects relationships? No. Your parents never warned you that this behavior is bad and this behavior is good? No, they, they're silent. It's like, how can this be? But it is. That in many Christian homes, there is virtually zero conversation during the week about the things of God. Now, there's lots of conversation about how'd you do in your latest science test and how'd you score in your civics exam and all this kind of stuff. But very little to know in some homes, obviously there's lots of exceptions to the rule, very little to know ongoing conversation about the things of God. Folks, this isn't about your family culture. You know, we do things a little different in our family than you might, Aaron. No, this, this is about basic obedience to the word of God. The word of God calls the people of God to constantly be, be engaging in biblical conversation. It's part of our call. It's part of our identity. It helps us to avoid deception and it positions us for life in the moment and for eternal life as well. Here are some mistakes that Christians often make, especially Christian parents. They fail to understand that they are part of a historical continuum. Each of us was born on a certain date and we die on a certain date, but there's history behind us and there's a future beyond us. And when we are born and we live Many of us will have children, physical children, hopefully some spiritual children as well. And it's our responsibility in our little moment of time in this historical continuum to pass on God's word to the next generation. And it only takes one generation to fail at that. And the historical continuum of faith comes to a crashing halt. We see this time and time again in history. Let's learn from history. We see godly people in our past who prayed and were committed to God's word, but maybe they weren't quite as conscientious in passing it on to their children. And by the time you get to their grandchildren, you have atheists and agnostics and proponents of absolute falsehood and trash, frankly. It's like, how do you go in a couple generations from a spiritual giant to an absolute abject enemy of God? Now, there's many factors, but one of the primary factors is a lack of biblical education, a lack of helping people to see that you should explore the world through the lens of Scripture. That you should speak and craft your words, your language, your rhetoric through the lens of scripture. That you should study and approach economic matters through the lens of scripture. 
That you you should consider sociological structures, what works, what doesn't work, what's right, what's wrong in human relationships through the lens of Scripture. Rather than just defaulting and saying, I'll let the secularists do it, they're morally neutral. No, no. We have a divine responsibility to teach the Word of God to our children. And life is incredibly short. We just have a fraction of time to have these spiritual conversations, but they can be powerful. Here, here are some default mechanisms, of course, that Christian parents fall into. They'll, they'll think to themselves, well, I'll just pass it off to the Christian school. No. If the Christian school augments and supports, that's great, but that's your job. If your children don't understand the word of God, it's not the Christian school teacher's fault. It's your fault. This is your responsibility. When you decided, hey, it's time to have kids, we're going to have some children, you signed up to be a spiritual educator. So don't pass it off to them. Other parents, well, I'm just going to let the youth guy do it. The youth pastor, the youth director, the youth group. Again, they will augment and support and be of help. But again, it's your responsibility. It's your responsibility. How about this one? Even more heinous. Well, I'm just going to let them make up their own mind. You know, I made up my own mind. I just sort of wandered into faith or, you know, experimented in sin for a long time. And now I'm a follower of Jesus and it's worked out okay for me. So I'm just going to kind of let my kids find their own path, find their own way. This is a demonstration, again, of the lie that there's such a thing as spiritual neutrality. You can't just let your kids find their own way. By doing so, you're actually turning them over to the world system, the prince of the power of the air, to educate them prior to them coming to faith and belief and trust in God. It is your responsibility to tell them the truth. There's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. As you're listening to my voice, you're hearing English words come out of my mouth. I didn't make these words up. They were passed on to me. Someone had to help me to learn to speak a language, even to communicate. My understanding of life, my understanding of scripture, my understanding of finances and relationships, that's all been passed on to me for the good or for the bad. There's no such thing as just putting someone out there and saying, hey, just figure it out for yourself. There's always going to be input we're receiving in life. And the question is, where are we going to allow our children to receive that input? Are they going to receive it from the godly, conscientious parent that understands the word of God? Or are they going to allow those that deny the existence of God or the morality of God or affirm him but don't live consistently for him? Are we going to allow them to teach our children? So you can't just throw them off to the Christian school. You can't just let the youth group do it. You can't just say, well, let them make up your own mind. And here's a fourth one. Well, I'm just going to stay silent. I'm just going to be a silent witness. No, 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 no. Be a witness, but don't be silent. The text is very clear. Every day, without fail. If you're in your children's presence, there should be some dialogue on some level about the scriptures. Even if it's not like, oh, look at this verse. This is what I just read. Conversations about how to conduct yourself in relationships that are informed by scripture. Conversations about how to save, spend, and give away your money in light of the concepts we find in Scripture. Conversations about your view of yourself. 
in light of the constructs we find in scripture. Conversations about politics. You think politics is morally neutral? (laughs) Don't kid yourself. Helping them to think through issues of government and state and the role of the church and their place as a conscientious citizen in their country, in light of the content we find in scripture. So let's not fall into the trap of trying to pass the buck. No, the Bible says, look at verse 19. You teach it to your children and you talk about it. You teach it and you talk about it. Then you get up tomorrow and guess what you do tomorrow? You teach it and you talk about it. And then guess what you do the next day? You teach it and you talk about it. Hey, do you know what you're supposed to do the day after that? Okay, I think you get it. You get it. Now you got to do it. You teach it and you talk about it. So as we consider this passage in application to our present circumstances, let's not, moving forward, have this notion that education is just sort of a 8.30 to 3 p.m. experience that we sort of farm out to someone else. Let's consider who are we allowing to teach us and to teach our children? And are we encouraging them to filter what they're hearing in the various disciplines of life and education through the ultimate source of education and the ultimate authority, which is the eternal, living, breathing, practical word of God. Let's also make sure we keep our antennas up. The reality is that some of the disciplines we study in educational systems today, in courses, in degrees, in extracurricular classes, is more corrupt than others, especially in the area of the humanities, studies of human origins, and art. There's a lot of lies, a lot of godless thinking, a lot of talk that sounds neutral. It's just secular after all. It's public. That actually is godless. And it corrupts minds and it perverts hearts and it deceives people into false notions about who they are, why they're here, what matters, what they should value, how they should live, and where they're going. A lot of corruption. And so let's not just dive in, ignorantly receive, passively consume and take in that which we're hearing. Let's filter it and let's encourage our children and our descendants to filter it through the word of God. Study, discuss, think, and be blessed by God's word. If you do, you'll also be blessed with life and joy and beauty. The final verse I'd like to read for you is verse 21. And this is where we're going to end. It talks about the results, the promises, the rewards, the eternal blessings that come about when we choose to become students of this book and talk about it and teach it and live it out and internalize it and allow it to make a difference. Here's what the Bible says. 
that your days and the days of your children, notice the implications for the next generation, that the days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. By the way, little sidebar, can't help but mentioning it. This is an eternal promise to the nation of Israel to be in that land that God had given to them for how long? Until their ultimate rebellion? No. It says as long as the heavens are above the earth. So a little sidebar, not super relevant to the core conversation we're having today, but relevant for understanding of theology is that the land belongs to Israel because God gave it to them and there's no expiry date until the heavens finally disappear and the earth finally disappears. But there's a little truth in there for us too. And that is that God never breaks his promises. He never reneges. The ultimate promises that God gave to Israel, he didn't renege on them. They still stand. They still stand. They're different than the promises to the new covenant believer. They still stand. There's been lengthy periods of time when the old covenant people of God have not been able to enjoy them, have not benefited them. God has taken it away from them because of their rebellion to his word. But in the end, God is always true to his promise. And the same principle applies under the new covenant. There may be times when we do not fully participate in the immediate blessings of the spiritual life that God offers to us through Christ because we are living in rebellion against him. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God will retain for himself a remnant of God-fearing, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying, word-saturated people that will be blessed by him. Will you be in their numbers? I hope and trust that you will. This is a wonderful blessing and promise to us from God. So let's go after it and let's experience the joy and the peace and the contentment that comes from it. To the glory and honor of God. Be blessed.